I'm a passionate people watcher. Ask my wife, Jorley. It drives her crazy. And, and unfortunately, it doesn't only end with people watching, but I also have this habit of eavesdropping, listening in on the conversations of strangers, imagining their life story, who they are, what they do. Oftentimes, uh, we'll be out for dinner and Jorley will go to the bathroom or something and she'll come back and she'll find me somewhat zoned out and just dialed in on the conversation at the table next to us. It's, it's a bad habit, but I've also found it's really hard to engage in this pastime when people are so spaced out and social distanced. Maybe that's a good thing, but it's one of the things I miss most about indoor dining, overhearing the conversations of strangers while I eat my crispy calamari and my chicken quesadilla and cold IPA. Right now, you're probably making a mental note to watch what you say if you're ever seated in a restaurant near me, and that's probably smart. Now, if we're honest, the most interesting conversations to listen in on are not the ones with with to-do lists, you know, dropping the kids off at swimming lessons or visiting grandma. The, The ones that are most interesting to listen in on are the conversations where things get a little bit heated where emotions are high, where, where conflict arises with the one who's is sitting at the table, or as they describe the interactions that they've had earlier in the day with their boss or coworker, their mom or dad. It's like driving past a huge residential fire. You're not glad that it's happening, but it's really hard to look away. And I'm always interested at how people will deal with conflict. Do they shut down? Do they lean in? Do they blow up? Do they avoid it altogether? The topic that Pastor Mark asked me to preach on today as we continue our series on the family is this idea of conflict in marriage, how to fight right. And as we start, I think it's worth us asking the question, why does this even matter? Why spend 12 weeks talking about family and relationships? And more specifically today, why focus in on fights and quarrels in marriage? Well, statistics say that that nearly 50% of marriages in Canada end in separation or divorce. And unfortunately, that statistic is not only true of non-Christian marriages, but there's very similar numbers within the church. Some sociologists are predicting that the craziness of the last 16 months with lockdown and stresses and economic unrest only accelerates these ends. People who months or years or decades earlier had stood up in front of their friends and family and professed their undying love for one another, that they'd stick together through sickness and health, richer or poorer. They couldn't get enough of each other. They spent every free moment together. They find themselves for one reason or another in a place where they can't stand each other. Some only converse through mediators or paid legal attorneys. What happened? Well, in the case of many of the couples that that I've walked with, most simply put, it boils down to unresolved conflict. At a certain point in the relationship, the honeymoon wore off, and the wonderful things that once covered a multitude of imperfections don't seem as wonderful anymore. And it's normally not just one conflict that went bad, but ongoing miscommunications and hurt feelings and, and things that were said that never should have been said, and suddenly a couple ends up in a place they never thought they'd be. Conflict has existed in families from the very beginning of time, or at least since sin entered the world. We see in the first couple documented in scripture, uh, Adam and Eve, they sin against God. Eve first, she eats the forbidden fruit. She shares it with Adam. And then when God confronts them about what they've done, what do they do? Well, instead of taking responsibility, they pass the blame. Adam says, she made me do it. This, This woman that you gave me, she's the problem. And then Eve similarly says, the snake did it. The snake made me do it. And and in hopes to save face with a desire for self-preservation, they throw one another under the bus and refuse to own the wrong they've done. When conflict arises, different people have different ways of coping with it. 
the two main ways that people deal with hardship has been widely coined by the phrase fight or flight, and, and both have dangers. Those whose first instinct is, is to fight often speak before they think, and they say things they wish they could take back. In the heat of emotion, words can, they can destroy a person. And, and while trust takes a lifetime to build, it can be destroyed with one sharp jab or thoughtless statement. An instinct to flight, to run from conflict, is also dangerous because although one might not say the things they're feeling, bitterness begins to grow. Unforgiveness can take root in the heart. And even though it might not come out in harsh, aggressive words or actions, over time it builds a wall in the relationship. And, and this bitterness often comes out in responses or maybe lack of responses in body language, and what's said about the other person behind their back. There was this interesting study that was done by, by a team of psychologists and researchers led by a doctor named John Gottman. He's a researcher and clinician who did extensive work over four decades on divorce prediction and marital stability. And he said that after 40 years of research, his team is able to predict couples that will get divorced versus stay together with very high, actually 90% accuracy, or so they say. The way that they conducted their research is they started making videotapes of couples who, who were just doing ordinary things, like talking about the, how their day went, or talking about an area of conflict, or continual disagreement. At the University of Washington, they, they built an apartment laboratory that was kind of like a bed and breakfast getaway for couples. And so these couples would voluntarily commit to 24 hours of participating in this study, and they'd go to this bed and breakfast type place where there was just this beautiful space over, overlooking the water, Boats would kind of pass by, and they could do whatever they wanted. They, they could listen to music if they wanted to. They watched TV. Others brought books. They did whatever they wanted to do. The only thing that was different between the, this laboratory and a regular bed and breakfast was that there was four cameras bolted to the walls, and the, the couples each wore halter monitors that measured two channels of electrocardiograms. And when they urinated, they took urine samples to measure stress hormones. And there was also people in the other room watching their facial expressions on these cameras. But aside from that, totally very similar to a bed and breakfast getaway. So they studied these couples and, and they started with newlyweds and they followed them through much of their life, many of them as they had kids and new careers. They stayed with some couples as long as 20 years. And, and one of the biggest things they learned when they observed these couples uh, that stayed together in marriage and that had happy, healthy relationships for the long haul was that when dealing with conflict, the ratio of positive things, like asking questions, assuming the best, versus negative things, like name calling, blame shifting, things that were, were the, the things were five to one, the ratio. Five positive things were said to one negative or critical thing. In relationships that broke down, ending in separation or divorce, the ratio was 0.8 to 1. So slightly more negative things were said than positive when dealing with conflict. So the researchers concluded that, that, the, that negative things have five times more power to bring about damage than positive things have to bring healing and bring you closer. That for every one hurtful thing that's said, it takes five meaningful, positive things to bring about healing. And this five to one ratio is only relevant in the midst of conflict. This same study said that as a general rule, couples they observed that were healthy and stayed together had a regular ratio of 20 to one, 20 positive experiences to one negative experience in their normal day-to-day -day lives. Uh, there needs to be this enormously rich climate of positive life-giving stuff. 
And so with that data in mind, if you're a therapist, you probably want to go to, to war with negativity on, on conflict in relationships. But psychologists at large have widely argued that conflict and fighting is actually productive in relationships. That hurt feelings and negativity actually helps to call out the stuff that doesn't work in relationships. For example, if you, if you hurt your spouse's feelings, you learn from it and you know what not to do next time. That, but that when dealing with, with conflict effectively, it's actually a very healthy and vital part of human relationships. The goal is not to suppress negative emotions, but to learn to deal with them in a way that brings about personal health and also the emotional health and well-being of the other person. So going back to this study from John Gottman and his associates, they found that not all negative things have equally corrosive results in marriage. Sort of echoing the apocalyptic language of the Bible, they said that when conflict arises, there's four horsemen who are certain to multiply relational pain and lead to marital death. And I want to share those four horsemen with you. So to be clear, in this study that they did with thousands of couples, there were four horsemen that had the greatest effect on marriage breakdown. If you're married, this is worth writing down. The first was criticism. And criticism is a way of complaining that implies that your spouse's personality is defective. Healthy couples still complain, but they, but they talk about their own feelings and, and what their needs are rather than turning it on their spouse as the root of the problem. For example, here's the difference. If a spouse in a healthy couple has a conflict to bring forward or, or is hurt or, or feeling upset, they might say, hey, you know, you talked about your day all through dinner and you haven't even asked me about what's going on in my life or, or what happened in my day and I have some big things I wanna share. I'm, I'm kind of feeling frustrated. See, there's still complaining involved, but the emphasis is on my feelings and needs rather than on the defects of my spouse. In, in contrast, an unhealthy couple might, might do it like this. Maybe someone would say, you know, you've talked all through dinner. You do this all the time. You don't even care about what I have to say. What's wrong with you? See the difference? That's criticism. The second horseman is closely linked to the first because when you feel criticized, you get defensive. And that's the second horseman, defensiveness. You're trying to shield yourself from this sort of attack. And, and the researchers found there's two main forms of defensiveness. There's righteous indignation, which is making excuses for why you did what you were accused of. And then there's innocent victim. And in other words, this is like whining. What healthy couples do is, is instead of getting defensive, they take responsibility. To, to use this, this same analogy of the dinner conversation, maybe a healthy couple, the, the person would respond like this, you know, wow, you're right. I, I did get really caught up in my own day and I, and I didn't even think to ask you about yours. I'm sorry. How was your day anyways? The third horseman is disrespect and contempt. And apparently this is the greatest predictor of divorce according to their study. Contempt is, it's a little bit different than criticism because it makes you feel like you're kind of superior to your spouse. You talk down to them as though you're on a higher playing field than them. Maybe you feel cleaner or tidier or smarter. So you talk down to them and, and your comments might come out in, in expressed like name calling or condescending tones, derogatory terms or phrases. And this can certainly bring a downward spiral in relationships. And then the fourth horseman is called stonewalling. Essentially this one is, is emotional withdrawal. In a healthy relationship, usually a listener, when there's a conversation going on, makes eye contact with the speaker, nods their head as, as, as though they're engaging with what's going on. Doesn't mean they agree, but they're listening, they hear. Maybe they move their faces, or, or there's some sort of signals that they're hearing what's being said. Stonewallers often fold their arms, you know, they barely acknowledge what's being said. Often they have closed body language, and it might even, they, they might not even look at the speaker when they're being talked to. 
So what this does to the speaker is it makes them feel like they're not being heard, that they're not getting through. And so instead of shooting their words with pistols, they bring out a cannon and they explode just to make some sort of impact and feel like they're getting through. These are the four horsemen. These are ways to break down your relationship, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, stonewalling. But where does conflict come from? Maybe these are symptoms of of conflict, but what's the root of it all? Well, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to James chapter four? Uh, We covered this passage in a series uh, that we did not too long ago. If you were part of our church at that time, you probably tracked along with us as we walked through the book of James. But I think these verses in chapter four have some really helpful insights at where the root of conflict really comes from in our relationships and in our marriages. So if you have a Bible, why don't you look there right now with me? It's James chapter four, starting in verse one. He says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. This is talking about prayer. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So the root of conflict in marriage and friendships and sibling relationships, the root of it, according to James, is a disorientation of our hearts and namely pride and selfishness. It's a sense that I deserve, that I'm entitled, thinking more highly of myself than I ought. And even though I might not say it, believing that my needs and my desires trump everyone else's, living in such a way that the world revolves around me. A Bible dictionary I read described pride like this. It said, an unwanted attitude of confidence, often referring to unhealthy, elevated view of oneself, abilities, and possessions. See, our 21st century Western context has has rebranded pride as self-confidence or expressive individualism, normalizing statements like, don't let anyone tell you how to be you. You deserve better. But all of those phrases and ideologies, they lead us to an overemphasis on me and my uniqueness as an elevate self above the needs of my neighbor, my preferences, my passion, my dream for life, my expectation of what marriage and family should look like, my expectation of how I think friends should treat me. This begins to absorb me to the point that anything that bumps up against those desires, my expectations, my passions, that, that challenge my personal ideals, they become the enemy. And this is a breeding ground for unhealthy conflict, and it all roots back to pride, an unhealthy, elevated view of oneself. The problem is it's, it's so easy to spot pride and selfishness in others, but it's actually really hard to identify it within ourselves. And maybe even as I'm saying this, as I read these words from James, you're thinking about your spouse or your friends or your mom or dad and their selfishness or prideful attitudes. Maybe you're thinking about who you should forward this message to, saying, you know, this is why you can't hear my point of view because your desires are out of whack. You're caught up in selfishness or pride. But here's the thing. Even if the conflict you're experiencing is 99.9% the other person's issue, it's probably not, but even if it is, there is sin in all of our hearts. And most of the time, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're more right and righteous than we truly are. According to James, the root of our conflict comes from in here, from an inflated view of self and pride and selfishness that puts our needs and our wants as the ultimate. And that's one of the reasons that pride is so deadly in relationships, especially in marriage relationships, because it blinds us to our own sin and imperfections, and it sort of hyper-focuses us on the shortcomings of others. 
When you have an overinflated view of yourself and expectations of how, how others should be and act and live and what you deserve, you begin to do what Jesus taught about in Matthew chapter seven. You begin to look at the speck of sawdust in the other person's eye instead of dealing with the log in your own eye. In other words, you get critical and preachy about these little bitty imperfections in your spouse that you think are so bad or so annoying while your pride is preventing you from seeing the massive defects in your own heart, many of which might actually be bringing out the worst in others around you. Maybe a side note, it might be worth considering that if you continue to have unhealthy conflict in relationships over and over again, different people, same problem, there might be a common denominator. And it might be worth doing some soul searching with the Lord and even asking a trusted friend or your spouse to lovingly help you to see what the log in your eye is preventing you from seeing in yourself. Pride and selfishness will destroy relationships. Now, now I wanna make a comment here about how this plays out in marriage. When, when both spouses are caught up in pride and selfishness, you have an unhealthy marriage where both are just taking from each other, using each other for personal fulfillment. This might be in the bedroom or outside the bedroom, not mutually submitting and serving each other like Ephesians 5 calls us to. Uh, this is an unhealthy marriage. Two spouses caught up in selfishness. When one spouse is selfish and self-absorbed, prideful, and the other's not, this can result in an abusive marriage, whether emotionally abusive or physically abusive, but results in one spouse taking advantage of the other, leveraging their marriage covenant for personal gain. And if that's you, I wanna humbly but sternly say, stop it. And this could be a husband or a wife, but let me just talk to the men for a moment. You are called to love and serve your wife like Jesus loves the church. This is a high calling. Your, your wife is a daughter of the living God. Love her, cherish her. And, and having a daughter of my own, I know how protective I am over my little girl. If someone lays a finger on her or even looks at her the wrong way, and I don't think for a moment that God isn't even more protective over his kids than we are of ours. Judgment will come to those who abuse or take advantage of his children. If not in this lifetime, then in the, the age to come. Husbands, don't use your income or your size or your power or your big personality to dominate over your wife. Protect her, care for her, encourage her, do whatever you can to bring out the best in her. And maybe it's important to say, if you are in an abusive relationship, if you're in danger, if you experience destructive behaviors, as a church, we're here for you. We wanna do whatever we can to help you. Reach out to us, come by our office during the week. You don't need to walk through this alone. So scripture tells us over and over again that God hates pride. We see it in multiple Proverbs, even lived out in narratives through the Old and New Testament. But specifically, look at the words from James. Later in this chapter, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Did you catch that? Well, let's break it off. Let's, let's first look at the, the first section of this, this verse. It says, God opposes the proud. Pride makes us an enemy of God. When, when we're full of pride, God himself opposes us. This is serious. And we see this come up over and over again in the life and teaching of Jesus. He always shows mercy to sinners. He ate with prostitutes and tax collectors, the sick, the poor, the lowest of the low. And who did he condemn and speak against? the Pharisees, the religious teachers of the day whose pride led them to believe that they had it all together or at least projected to others that they had it all together. Check out Proverbs uh, chapter 15, verse 25. It says, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will set the boundary of the widow. 
Or I love how Eugene Peterson said it. He said it like this, God smashes the pretension of the arrogant, but he stands with those who have no standing. I love that. God always stands with the oppressed and the outcast, and he goes to war with pride and self-righteousness. Okay, so what's the way through? What's the antidote to selfishness and pride that has this grip on all of our hearts at some capacity? Humility. That same verse says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The truth is that we all have pride and selfishness in our hearts. And as long as we're living and breathing on this planet, there is a war that's at play between our sin nature and our new nature as citizens of heaven. But the key is not to try harder not to sin or, or to try harder to be less prideful. The key, according to James, and also taught by Jesus our Savior, is to admit our faults and to walk humbly to the foot of the cross where we find grace and mercy and forgiveness. See, God's not afraid of our sin. God can work and redeem our bad attitudes and our addictions, our unhealthy behaviors, the, the unresolved conflict in our heart. But what often gets in the way is our pride. We think we should be able to kind of self-help our way to a better life or to better relationships. Uh, that if we try harder, if we smile more, if we buckle down and keep going, that things will eventually sort themselves out, but it never seems to work. The key is humility admitting your faults, admitting your predisposition towards pride and selfishness and self-preservation and constantly putting those things to death, exchanging our burden to perform, our need to perceive, be perceived by others as holy and righteous for the burden that Jesus offers, a burden that's light, a righteousness that doesn't depend on our ability to perform or to do good, but relies on the finished work of Christ. Okay, we've looked at a number of, of different aspects of this topic, but I wanna pull it all back together and, and just give some simple and I hope helpful application for what this can look like in the context of marriage. We said conflict comes from pride and pride makes us do and say some really stupid things, especially when we're enamored by and kind of caught up within ourselves. So how do we deal with it in relationships? With humility, yes, but, but how is that lived out? What does it actually look like in our day-to-day -day lives? Well, as I was thinking through this section and, and praying through what I should share, I, I sat down with Don and Ann Krauss, who are an incredibly faithful and God-honoring couple in our church. They've been married for 64 years, and so that's more than twice as long as I've been alive. And they really paint this beautiful picture of the kind of marriage that Jorley and I really long to have when we're in our 80s. And so I sat with them and I asked them some questions about how they've dealt with conflict and pride and selfishness in their relationship over the last 60 decades or six decades. And through, through the different seasons of life that they've had as they've had children and grandchildren and retirement, and, and I really gleaned a lot of wisdom from our conversation, and I want to share some of that with you right now. So number one in dealing with pride and conflict in our marriages is this, is start by building a culture of honor and appreciation. Before you ever bring a complaint or a criticism to your spouse, before you point out the imperfections or start airing your dirty laundry, it's so important that we cultivate an atmosphere of honor and appreciation. This is the type of relational ecosystem that breeds healthy marriages. Remember that, that, that 20 to one ratio that we talked about before. Healthy marriages have 20 positive interactions to every one negative interaction. And the reality is that as humans, we all need encouragement especially when in our current cultural moment, encouragement just seems harder and harder to come by. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul the Apostle says it like this. He says, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. 
The reality is that most of us don't say the great things we think about others. We think fond things from time to time. We, we, we think about or we remember great memories that we've had, that we've shared, and then we move on. But it's crazy the impact that it can have on your relationship, especially on your marriage. If you catch your spouse doing something you admire or appreciate and then celebrating them, thanking them, showing gratitude to them, even the small things, like thanking your spouse for doing the dishes, even if it's even their turn to do the dishes anyways. It seems so silly, but thanking them can go such a long way. Or, or when they've spent the day with the kids while you've been on Zoom meetings for hours on end, letting them know just how much you appreciate their contributions to your family. Or going out to the grocery store, buying you a coffee, finding any opportunity you can to encourage and honor your spouse. And then when you encourage, try to go beyond just the little actions. Although that's a great place to start, appreciate who they are as a person and be as specific as you can. Call out the God-given gifts and abilities and traits that you see in your spouse. It might feel forced at first, especially if it's not part of your kind of family culture at this point. Maybe at the start, it might feel more like a discipline rather than something that easily flows off your tongue. But I wanna challenge you that when you think good things about your spouse, say them, text them. And, and, and even if you feel like it's too much, like you're going overboard, you're not. Keep it coming. Expressing appreciation and gratitude goes a long way in marriage. And it's so important to have this practice as, as you build and attempt to engage in conflict in a healthy way. Number two is fight the problem, not the person. This one is so important. When there's conflict in our relationships, it's so easy to get critical and to point to the defects of our spouse's personality in who, in who we're saying that they are, to push blame, to tear them apart, but resist that. Fight for unity and attack the problem, not the person. An analogy that's helpful for me is thinking about a boxing ring. When you engage in conflict, it's easy to think about the two of you as fighting on either sides of the boxing ring, taking shots at one another, jabs, punches, with, with every word and argument until one of you wins the fight. But what healthy couples do is, is rather than attacking one another, they move around the outside of the boxing ring and they link arms and together they fight the problem. Don't tie your spouse to the problem. Take a step back and evaluate, okay, what's the real issue here? And then together, find a solution to the problem. Some helpful advice that Jorley and I received early in our marriage was to avoid saying statements like always and never. See, in the heat of emotion, when, when you're feeling defensive or, you're, or your guard is up, it's so easy to start using accusatory statements. For example, you might say, you know, you never clean up after yourself. What's wrong with you? Or you always hurt my feelings. Or you never make me feel beautiful. Or you always do these things that frustrate me. But the reality is that, that these always and never statements are very rarely actually true. I don't always do that. But when you use these, these definitive accusatory statements, you attack the person, not the problem, criticizing their character or motives, assuming instead of dealing with the issue at hand. Words can be sharp like knives. And in Ephesians chapter five, Paul writes, do not let any unwholesome words come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Use your words to build up and not to tear down. Thirdly, regularly practice confession and repentance. Again, going back to the book of James, in chapter five, verse 16, he says, confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confession is, is a vitally important rhythm in marriage. Confessing to God in private, yes, but also to one another. 
James says, confess your sins to each other. There's this power in admitting sin and failure out loud to our spouse or to a close friend. It's a weapon that goes to war on our pride and positions our heart in a posture of humility. When I do something wrong against God or against others, maybe I say something I shouldn't or I do something that's hurtful or brings pain to my wife or to another person, I need to own it. And and not the kind of half-hearted confession, like, you know, the reason I said or did this is because of how you blah, 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 blah. No, don't justify your actions. Don't point to all the reasons why what you did is sort of okay if you look at it this way or because of these circumstances. No, confession, no excuses, no blame casting, just I'm sorry, I was wrong. And even though it's uncomfortable, especially in the moment, confessing our sins to one another actually brings so much freedom in our relationships with God and in our relationships with one another. Susan Weisbauer said, said, never give an apology when a confession is called for. An apology is an expression of regret, where a confession is an admittance of wrongdoing. And then repentance. Repentance means actually making a change in your life, doing a 180 turn, not just saying the words you need to say in order to get your spouse off your back, but actually making an active change to prevent you from making that same mistake again. This is is the hard part. And and it's something that really needs to be done in community with accountability, with people who love you enough to continue to call you up and to help you to become the man or the woman that you were made to be. And then lastly, extend liberal doses of grace and forgiveness. When Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, asked him how, how, how many times he needs to forgive, Jesus responded with this answer. He said, 70 times seven. And of course, Jesus didn't mean that we should stop forgiving after 490 times. No, he was saying that that there should be no limit to our forgiveness, that we should be liberal in the way we forgive others. Why? Because we've been forgiven. Because the, the offense of our sin was so great, yet while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And we continue to do and say and think things that offend God, and yet he shows us grace upon grace upon grace. What we deserve is death, but he's given us life and a seat at the table that we have absolutely no right to be in. And as his people, as his image bearers on the earth, he calls us to do the same, to forgive, to show grace, to show mercy, even if it's not deserved. And when we do this, he promises that he also will forgive us. Okay, let's leave it there for today and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I I thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for these instructions that we find in James and in the Proverbs about how to deal with conflict well. I pray as, as CA Church, as the marriages, as the friendships, as the relationships in this community, that you would help us to deal with conflict well that we would be people who, who don't avoid conflict but lean into it in a healthy way and, uh, and, and help us to be people who, who admit our failure, who walk humbly to the foot of the cross, confess our sins, repent, and turn to you. I also pray for those today who are in broken relationships or maybe who've even gone through just the painful experience of divorce. They've had these difficult experiences with conflict. Would you, would you comfort them? Would you restore broken hearts? And, uh, and even, even in these, these times, I just pray that you would help us, your church, to surround those who are brokenhearted and to bring love and comfort and community. Help us to be your church to one another, we pray. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.